Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm in London with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us all the way from Tucson, Arizona, some ungodly and very unrock and roll hour of the morning, is the superbly monikered Kid Congo Powers. Welcome. Hello. Great to be here. <laughs> Great to have you here, Kid. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for well, you said your cats wake you at five o'clock anyway, so maybe yes, made exactly. me feel slightly better about asking you to get up so early. <laughs> so your excellent memoir, Some New Kind of Kick, is being published in the UK next week. And I absolutely loved it. And of course, some credit must go to RBP contributor Chris Campion, who was a guest on this very podcast in July 2019. Mm. We talked about Charles Manson and, <laughs> and the mamas and the papas. <laughs> Memory serves. Yeah. And he's a desert dweller also, is he not? Yes. Kid? Yes. yes. So shout out to Chris. In the book, kid, you, you mentioned that when you first met the gun club's Jeffrey Lee Pierce, I think queuing up to see Peru at the whiskey, in 1979 you'd never played guitar and you were thinking at that point of trying your hand as a music writer so given this is rocks back pages what rock writing influenced you growing up in in east la in the early 70s well you know i came of age in the in the era of glam rock so, uh, yeah, actually it was more the writing of, it was almost fanzine writing of rock scene magazine and, and also cream magazine, of course. But rock scene was really like what I was looking at because it was kind of half gossip rag and half, you know, uh, music criticism and journalism. And I was interested in both of those aspects and, so, you know, Richard Robinson, Danny Fields, you know, Robert Criscow and Cream Magazine. You know, th- these were people I was reading. I really always liked essays by actual artists. You know, that that always was what I liked hearing because I liked hearing from the actual artists. Like, you know, Patti Smith or Lenny Kay, mm-hmm. who had a moniker of duck rock and um <laughs> and, and wrote under that but everyone knew it was lenny k even though i didn't know who lenny k was he was the guy who put the nuggets compilation together so those were things that i was i was looking at at the time where would you find rock scene magazine in la and how, how did you happen upon rock scene <laughs> It would be actually it had a pretty wide distribution, so I would find it at at newsstands, mostly in Hollywood, or you know, or or music related record stores, places like that. Would be where I would find it, and it was immediately you know, taken away by this whole mostly New York centric scene. You know, if it had pictures of Lou Reed and David Bowie in it, I wanted to see, read about it and see it. And, and it had many, you know, them hanging out at Max's or whatever, you know, Max's Kansas City. And, uh, and, and that kind of thing was in, intriguing to me. And I was like, you know, I want to be there. And how do I get there? I write about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you write about, New York. I mean, the book is very much, you know, you're in New York one minute, you're back in LA the next, and you're in mm-hmm. New York. But there's there's a lot about New York. And and I think your first experience of New York was it was like a school trip. You were there for like a day, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. Sort of crammed as much sleep <laughs> into that day as you could. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I think went to London, right? If, yes. if I remember, yeah. Yeah, that was a I hoodwinked my parents into getting me this because I was going to quit high school. And I said, there's nothing more for me to learn here. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so I, they, they said, and I knew there was this trip to Europe with the school, you know, and I was actually on the school newspaper staff and was the music critic for my high school newspaper, bringing the word of great uh, avant music to, to suburban high schoolers in a Chicano <laughs> community. And, uh, I can and, see Mark's already thinking, we have to get that on Rock's Back page. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I have copies. <laughs> I do. Have, uh, I do. You oh, be, careful. be careful what you, what you yes. sort of half offer here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I knew this trip was coming, and, and I said, well, 
I really want to go on this trip. What if I, you know, I wanted to quit school, but actually, no, my parents knew I wanted this trip. And they offered, like, if you take uh, what they call here a GED test, mm-hmm. which is an equivalency test to graduating high school, we'll send you on this trip. So I was like, you know, immediately got the test and did it. And so, so yeah, that was my way to get somewhere, you know, to, to go to record stores and Holy Grail sites of, uh, of different places in Europe, you know, in the UK. But London was definitely, I had my sights on, on London and, uh, and uh, really just was a dream to go there being a, a British music rock fan for so long as from the earliest teen years to, uh, to later teen years at that point. <laughs> and, yeah, so 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 that that got me my first taste, and I got my uh, first taste of in London. You know, I was like, okay, I have to go to a concert. I have to go see something. That punk rock is happening. I have to go. And I was like, what's what's happening tonight? Because I'm only here one night. And uh, and there was a concert at a club called the Vortex on Water uh-huh. Street. Sure, oh, yeah. And, and uh, it was the Slits and the Prefects. <laughs> and Tanya Hyde and the Tormentors, <laughs> who uh, I've not heard of before or since. Or since. <laughs> but, but, uh, they were tormented. And so, yeah, so that was like a real experience, completely different culture, different punk culture than my uh, than the Ramones and, and the American version of punk rock at the time. And yeah, I was, you know, immediately left the concert and chopped all my hair off in the <laughs> dorm room and, uh, you know, left a pile of hair in the sink and, and was on my way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I remember, I remember very vividly that at the show that the DJ was playing, uh, Gary Gilmore's Eyes by the Adverse, which mm-hmm. apparently was a new and very popular song at the club. And it really just electrified the entire audience before any band even came on. And it was just so uh, exciting to me, you know, and, and immediately went out and bought that record. And, um, and yeah, so it was uh, the start of my British, uh, you know, and it was a, a more visceral foray into what I only read about in magazines, you know. <laughs> so experience, experience, experience being the best teacher. Just to rewind your tape very slightly, I think Mm -hmm. you talk about one of the first shows you saw in L.A., which was Frank Zappa and the the Mothers at the Hollywood Bowl. I wanted to ask you about, you know, specifically the the Cruising with Ruben and the Jets album. Mm -hmm. Given your Mexican-American background, you grew up in La Puente, a suburb in, in East L.A., and I know you were already a Zappa. Were you already a Zappa fan before the Ruben and the Jets thing took off well this will this will be a matter of pinpointing time uh but i knew more about like freak out and absolutely free and we're only in it for the money all the mothers of invention and this was because i had a a next door neighbor who was a my older sister's age but saw that i had an aptitude for for rock music and um, I love the word aptitude yes yes I was I was I was ready for it and he saw that I might be a good person to corrupt with the ways of the uh, underground at the time you know and uh, and so yeah he was a big Zappa fan you know he's a painter artist himself a young guy uh, Steve Escondone and he knew about R. Crumb and, and, you know, Furry Freak Brothers mm-hmm. and, and different, all kinds of things. But he was for first and foremost a big Zappa aficionado. And, and so he exposed me to that. And I immediately uh, was uh, so uh, attracted to it. You know, I was in. It was funny. It was irreverent. The music was strange. It was snarky. And, you know, all the things that I, I you know, I was probably 15 you know, at the time. So, you know, it was, um, it was incredibly appealing. And they were freaks. Oh, they For, were freaks. They were freaks. <laughs> um, freaks, daddy. 
the reason partly that I mentioned the Ruben and the Jets album is because Art mm. LeBeau just died mm, yes. by coincidence. And, you know, that that album, for any listeners who don't know, was a sort of homage, wasn't it, to yeah. that era, to the shows that Art put on at the El Monte Legion Stadium, Stadium. old like doo-wop and street corner sort of groups. And I just wondered whether you, you know, and very much very much with that sort of Chicano kind of edge to it, I think. Is that fair to mm-hmm. say? Is that how you remember it? And were you, oh, were yeah, you struck by that as a kid? I was struck by that as a kid because it was Art LeBeau and Oldies, as they call it, Oldies music lowrider, lowriders and Mexican-American. So we're listening to at, in my neighborhood at, at the time. That was incredibly prevalent everywhere. You know, in school and, and what I heard and my, what my sisters, older sisters, were listening to. And so, yeah, so Ruben and the Jets was a familiar and it was half, it was half homage and, and it was, and it was pretty hilarious too, you know, um, yes. you know, so it was half homage and half a, a bit, you know, making fun of it and, and a bit snarky about it. I think now in, in hindsight, it, it's more homage than anything. And it's one of my favorite albums of all time, Yeah, you know, right now. And I think a huge influence on, on what I do in music, you know, and what I like. And, and I credit it to that was a way in for me to tap into more Chicano roots. You know, it was not necessarily coming from the direct mm-hmm. music, but Frank Zappa uh, reworked it into a form that made sense to to me, to, to a, a rebellious me and to a, a, and a brain that wants to rework everything because who knows why. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you saw the mothers, didn't you? I think you said in, in, at the Albert Hall. Did you see the yes. mothers? Yeah, no, remember, no, did, no, no, no. Oh, I saw, wow. I saw them at the Rainbow. I saw them the night that Zappa was pushed off stage. Oh, of course, yeah. Oh, Which yeah, is a little yeah. bit later. Uh, it was a little yeah. bit later. I was right at the back of my memories. They had blue lights on the stage, and mm-hmm. just seeing this pair of trousers descending like that, white trousers going down. Oh, yeah. And then, like the band stopped and everything stopped, and that was the end of the show. And he broke his legs very badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember yes. hearing that. Which yeah. added to his hatred of England. Paradoxical hatred, because I, I actually met him. Um, I was friends with John Mayle's kids at school, and Frank mm-hmm. was a big friend of their mum's, and he used to come, and he would be over there. He told me off for rolling a joint at their kitchen table. <laughs> 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 yeah, he was, he was quite, he was, an, he was anti-drug. Oh, he was very, anti- very much yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to see him, I was expecting, you know, the Mothers of Invention, but it was actually, uh, he was doing, it was right before or right at the time that the he had an uh, album called The Grand Wazoo, which actually had an uh, orchestra playing. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a little confusing because I said, oh, there's an orchestra on stage and they're, <laughs> they're doing a lot of instrumentals and they're doing a lot of, you know, but they did, you know, a lot of hot rats and this and that but, but with, with strings. And it was quite incredible and impressive. And I will say the bill was Frank Zappa. Uh, next was The Doors minus Jim Morrison. <laughs> minus the late Jim Morrison. Yeah. The latest, the late Jim Morrison. And the audience was not having it at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was just strange for L.A., huh? And then the opening was uh, Tim Buckley. <laughs> so, not bad at all. Yeah, so that was a great first concert. Can we jump forward to... From the Hollywood Bowl to Rodney's English Disco, here's mm-hmm. here's little Brian Tristan in this sort of den of iniquity on Sunset with all these sort of rock and roll nymphettes running around. I mean, how do you <laughs> how do you remember how did you get in in the first place? And was that sort of your kind of glitter rock baptism? Yeah, you know, I will say I probably got there a little bit late in the game. You know, it was I wasn't there at at the start of Rodney's, but you know, I was very young. 
what I did, I knew about it and I wanted to go and I luckily had older friends with cars that would drive there. Other rock and roll kids I knew. And my way, I know, I don't, I don't know how we got in being underage, but there was a lot of underage kids in there. I'll tell <laughs> yes. you that much. I will tell you that much. So it wasn't but, very uh, difficult to get in, yeah. actually. Yeah. But what, what happened is I met some people I was interested to meet, and um, there was a lot of young people. And, and what we would do was there was a back alleyway that had – we went in the back of the club and we would go and drink back there. I made friends with all these kids who were underage and couldn't get in, but they wanted to be there. And, and we would, uh, you know, drink a <clears throat> terrible Rainer's ale and, you know, take pills and have fun. And, um, but then it would seem like later in the evening, the, the, the age restriction just left and everyone was let in. And, um, and, and, you know, but, but it was a time, you know, all these kids wanted to be there and be close to rock stars and rock music and be, you know, we wanted to be involved. And, and, and that was a way to be completely involved and to be able to dress up and prance around and preen and uh, <laughs> just like they talked about in the songs, you know, we, we took our cues from, from uh, rebel rebel or whatever, you know, yeah. um, you know, and, um, and, and so, yeah, so there was, that, that was a thing. And, you know, and I, you know, I was a uh, pretty sure I was a gay kid by then. Yeah. I was, you know, yeah. Yeah. I was attracted to males and I did notice that a lot of the older men in their, uh, sheer tops and, uh, <laughs> and and platform boots were probably not gay men, you know, but they were really uh, attracted to the very young women that were there. <laughs> but there was a lot of like gay high school kids there, you know, that were there for the excitement of the music and to be, be part, part of, of it. But um, yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was definitely a sleazy, scene you're going down there but it didn't matter to me i was young i didn't care about these other people you know we were the stars (laughs) (laughs) i mean you write beautifully in the book about the the la scene which has always fascinated me and so that kind of dovetails very neatly with all the people you write about the, the kind of beginning of the punk rock scene in los angeles which you know, which which uh, was was earlier than most people think, right? I mean, everyone just mm-hmm. assumes that LA just sort of copied New York and London, mm. but there was a lot going on pretty early on, wasn't there? And you were you were around a lot of the scenesters that started forming bands, and you yourself, you know, were one of them. And the, the great story of of Jeffrey Lee Pierce basically basically asking if you wanted to play guitar in a band with him and, and, and you just said, I, I don't play guitar. I've never even picked up a guitar. And he said, yeah, I believe you can, you can play guitar. Right. And yeah. Jeff, so Jeffrey was someone that you, you encountered relatively early, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. not mid seventies, but late seventies, you, you, you encountered him. Yeah. He certainly wasn't a typical of anything. Was he Jeffrey? I mean, no. tell, tell us briefly about the late Jeffrey Lee Pierce. Yeah, he was not not a trendy one, you know. He wasn't. Right. He he wasn't. He was actually when I encountered him, he was done up in the most strangest of style, <laughs> you know. Uh, he was a you know the Deborah Harry uh, Blondie fan club uh, president. He so he had adopt already was adopting his uh, would later become the Marilyn Monroe from Hell <laughs> uh, image <laughs> he, yes. that, yes. that he that he, right. he that he coined himself and. Um, <laughs> And uh, so he, he already, you know, he had like these ribbons in his hair and he had a trench coat belted very tightly and some like, you know, 50s girls saddle shoes on. And it was just like, I was like, who is this strange creature here? <laughs> you know, but it wasn't like cross-dressing. It was just it was it was something else, you know, maybe just bad style. But um <laughs> But, but but great style, very original, and yeah. So he, I had seen him before because I had worked at Bomp Records, you know, mm-hmm. Greg Shaw's record store, and 
that was one of the earliest stores that dealt in uh, British import records and uh, as a storefront. And Jeffrey would come in and peruse the, you know, mostly the reggae 12-inch records that would come in. And uh, and so I, I knew him from in a customer clerk kind of way. And we had seen each other around at every single show that ever happened in L.A., you know, in that time, because mm-hmm. there was non-stop shows going on and there were only a handful of the same people you know making the rounds yeah so he he just struck up a conversation you know feeling like perhaps he knew me because we've seen each other and uh and that we were that we were early in line to see para ubu you know that you know being at in the front was you know paramount it had to happen it just had to happen and uh you know you weren't experiencing it was something you were right there so yeah at the end of our con we talked about traveling we talked about because he had traveled for to see music and i you know i traveled in new york and london and and we were uh yeah he just said like oh you should be in a band you know, you seem like someone who should be in a band and you should play guitar and I'll be the singer. And I was like, well, I don't play guitar. And he's like, well, I'll show you. I know this way. It's really easy. That blues guitar, guitarists, they, they tune their guitar to open E and then they just play with a slide. And I was already enamored with the slide because right. not because of necessarily blues music, but I had been to New York and seen the no wave. So it was more like Lydia Lunch or uh, right. Pat Place and the Contortions who were using slide guitar in more right. of a experimental expressionist sort of way. You know, these, these things uh, were, that was exciting to me. And so I thought, well, that seems doable. Okay, let's start a band. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect that we would be playing so soon. No. And that was Creeping Ritual, right? Yes. The original the called- sort of pre gun club, it was The Creeping Ritual, which yeah, it was which slightly was a hilarious name. I, I, yes. got an, <laughs> I got an email from Don Snowden earlier this oh, week great. because he wrote a wonderful piece about uh, Pharaoh Sanders for us the other day. Oh, and I mentioned that you were going to be on the podcast. And so he said, just curious, did he talk in his book about us working at the Licorice Pizza in the San Fernando Valley? And I said, yes, he does talk about the Licorice Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> And he had this very funny story, which which, oh, uh, it, it. which may trick us in memory. When all of us were anxiously waiting for give him enough rope to come in, it was when Sheik's Le Freak hit, and all the Chicano kids in the hood came looking for it. And they asked to hear the first few seconds of Le Freak, and as soon as they heard it, they slapped their dollar down and off they went. Which I think it's a lovely story. Well, I would yes. take the freak over, give him enough rope probably any day. Yes. <laughs> I, um, I, might, I concur. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all on the same page. I think so. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, one of the great things about this book and about your sort of status in the world of the music we're talking about is is that you you know you worked with three of the most extraordinary frontmen and figures in in music, namely Jeffrey, Lux Interior of the Cramps, and then Nick Cave. What a sort of wonderfully unholy trinity that <laughs> is, and. You didn't play on the first couple of Gun Club records, but you you came back to to Jeffrey and you're on the Las Vegas story and Mother Juno. I just a, a sort of quick question on Pastons. You know, Jeffrey is someone who he's certainly not been forgotten, but he doesn't have the sort of status right that. I like a Nick Cave has, and you sort of touch on this in the book, which I think is really interesting. You were saying like Nick has had much, however fucked up he was, had more of a support system around him, and and Jeffrey kind of didn't. My question to you would be: Do you think that Jeffrey was an influence on Nick, and has Nick ever acknowledged that in terms of the whole sort of gothic kind of evil preacher Americana sort of thing that Nick did? That's a very difficult to say because they came up at the same time, you know. So um, I'm—I know they admired each other, 
Yeah. Uh, as and you know maybe maybe Jeffrey was a little bit maybe the Gun Club a little before. I think it's coincidental myself, okay. you know. But I think there was a great admiration. I think Nick has great admiration for Jeffrey for sure, and related to him and was a friend to him. And I don't think he would have been a friend to him if he didn't admire him, you know. So so yeah, that that's a difficult. That's a very chicken in the egg sort of <laughs> sure. question uh, sure. because because i to me it coincides you know their interest in this in blues music you know yes and and the, and the picture i mean certainly um when i saw the birthday party it was a, a howl from very deep within which you know which jeffrey also you know encompassed you know so i think they were both already dedicated to the howl within, you know. Yes. Uh, and I think blues music actually spoke to both of them, you know, as a, a medium to uh, to that it was something coming from deep within, you know, this kind of music and uh, this kind of sometimes almost experimental element of blues music you know that uh, very can be very loose you know there's the traditions of course mm. but but if but then if you listen to you know live john lee hooker bootleg you know it's really something else you know he's mm. got all over the place he's following his whims and you know it's a it's a, a beautiful a beautiful exploration like probably not unlike free jazz sometimes, you know, you know, um, that he's going places, you know, and, uh, taking you there. And, um, and these were, I think were the interests of someone like Jeffrey or Dornick, you know, that could be when people say it to me all the time, Oh, Jeffrey is so unsung. He's so not, you know, for one, he's not lived long enough to <laughs> to mm. capitalize more on a career, but mm. also he, um, to me, he's very influent. I mean, to hear what people say to me about Jeffrey Lee Pierce when they talk, to, when fans talk to me, and other artists talk to me, even younger artists. I mean, he's so important to them, and he's so influential. So to me, it's. Um, I feel like he's as influential as Nick Cave is on on people's lives. I think the the depth with which he touched people is equal. You know, numbers may be something else, but uh, sure, but, uh, yeah. There's a very poignant thing in one of the pieces that feature on the homepage is this piece that you know our mutual friend Fast Freddie Patterson wrote mm -hmm. uh, when you and Jeffrey had been kind of reunited. So this is this is. April 1988, and you you basically drive around like yeah. rock and roll Hollywood <laughs> with, with Freddie and Jeffrey, and like pointing out places you used to live and shoot heroin and so forth. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and this is a poignant bit where Jeffrey talks about yeah. living fast and dying young, and he, he sort of he's underage because I didn't die, he says. And and Freddie says, if you had died, they would have canonized you. <laughs> and and then you kids say, well, they love Jim Morrison and they love Johnny Thunders, uh, even though he's not dead, he still qualifies as somewhat <laughs> dead. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and and Jeffrey then say, Jeffrey says. They're really serious about the rock and roll rebel idea. I think he's talking about like fans in France and places yeah. like that. Really serious about the rock and roll rebel idea of let's do heroin and spill whiskey on each other and die young. But when you get into your late 20s, you start thinking, hey, man, maybe I don't want to die young. And obviously he's at that point, you know, he's sort of 10 years away from mm -hmm. dying pretty young. Didn't he? He died at 37. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I never saw the Gun Club play, and uh, but I did meet Jeffrey once with Harvey Kubernick when he was doing one of his like spoken word albums, and I remember, I remember talking to to, to Jeffrey, and then going into the bathroom after he'd been in there, and there was like a works like sitting on top of the loo, you know, that's a syringe for anyone not. You know, okay. the, 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 the full <laughs> junkie <laughs> glossary. <laughs> <laughs> My 
Should we talk about the cramps? How can we not talk about the cramps? I, I must yes. have seen you with the cramps a couple of times. I did mm-hmm. see you with the cramps once in London and one in that one of the, the Reseda Country Club show you mentioned. Oh, yeah I, rem- yeah. I remember that. And so, I mean, tell us this extraordinary when they, they headhunt you. Um, and, 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 and yeah, uh, in you, full costume. You, you'd seen them play in New York and everything, but suddenly out of the blue, you get a call from Lux and Ivy. So tell us about them. Yeah, so I'd been playing with the Gun Club for one year. Playing, I picked up the guitar, and and we the Gun Club was about one year old, and we were playing at clubs and um, you know the cute young things and uh, <laughs> that other bands liked, but we had about ten fans. And Lux and Ivy were unbeknownst to me, moving, relocating to Los Angeles and looking for a new guitar player because their guitar player before, Brian Gregory, who was very much a kind of face of the cramps. uh, Scary scary face. (laughs) Yeah, very scary face. uh, But he uh, had, you know, absconded in the night and left the band, you know, with their van full of equipment. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) so they were needing someone new. Some mutual friends, I think, I mean, many people are claiming this. I told them to go see you. I told them to go see you. But I remember it was uh, Christian Hoffman from The Mumps and and Bradley Field from Teenage Jesus. They told Lux and Ivy, like, go see this guy. He's, you know, he's, you know, met him before. He's a fan of yours. And uh, they have a song about Ivy. They're kind of a cramp spinoff sort of, you know, idea, you know, whatever. And so they came and Lux uh, taped the show with his uh, cassette recorder with a microphone and uh, under the, ca- the cassette recorder under his coat. And, and I heard they were there. Dave Alvin from the Blaster said, oh, I saw Lux and Ivy. They were taking notes. They had a notepad. They were taking notes. <laughs> and, uh, that I can believe. I know. I know. And, I, and, I, and they, they had a doctor's lab coat. No, but it was a stethoscope. <laughs> yeah, so, the, uh, you know, a few days later, I get a phone call and, uh, and they say, we're going to come over and have a talk with you. And I say, ooh, oh, no. okay. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what do I wear? And uh, <laughs> and they, they said, <laughs> and so Ivy just came out. Ivy did all the talking. She just said, like, well, do you want to be in the cramps? And I was like, well, uh, Yes. And she said, okay, then you can be in our band or whatever. And I was like, okay, well, what, and I asked, what should I do? You know, do you want me to audition or, uh, you know, just what, what happened, what would happen next to make this happen? And and she said, well, what would you sacrifice to be in the cramps? You just have to answer this question. And I said, well, what, like quit my band or relocate uh, or quit going to college or, you know, something like that. You know, I'd sacrifice those things. And she said, like, no, nothing like that. I want to know, would you cut off a finger <laughs> to be in our band? And I thought about it for one second. And I said, yeah, I think I would. <laughs> and she said, okay, you're in the cramps now. That was and the that right was answer. Yes, <laughs> yes, I would cut off a finger. <laughs> I love that moment in the book as well, because you describe it as like, it seemed quite drastic, not least considering they wanted you to play guitar, which is, exactly. which is very funny. Like, you know, yeah, well, I guess, what the hell? It's only a finger. You've got 10 yeah. of them. You know, it, but, it's a but great, they, great but they story. But they, they had seen me and knew I only play with one finger. Right. Exactly. So, so one slide, finger, yeah, yeah. Good <laughs> You can afford to lose <laughs> one of them. Uh, that is very funny. I think it's also the moment immediately after that in the book where you go and ask Jeffrey whether it's okay for you to quit the gun club and mm. you don't know what to do. And, and he's sort of like, are you insane to even ask? Of course you should join the cramps, which is lovely in yeah. itself as well. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, well, and Jeffrey had immediately had his own interests uh, there. He's like, yes, join the cramps and make sure you get the gun club on the, on bills with the cramps when they play, right. you know, <laughs> which I did keep that. But then I was later thinking that, what he's he's already has a gun. <laughs> he's already replaced me, and I haven't even left the band yet. <laughs> <laughs> he had no, uh, yeah. He, he didn't occur to him that he was stopping. Yeah. So, and of course, you had to. Have, Everyone went. You had to have a cramps name. It's also mm. the great 
Stories great, st- you great story. <laughs> yes. You, you, you can't be called Brian Tristan. You have to have no. a cramps name. So they just devise this wonderful name for you. Yes. So, well, Lux Interior was always appointing people, uh, <laughs> characters, you know. And so he was like, oh, you know, you know, you should, oh, hey, look at this picture. And he showed me a picture of Kid Thomas. And it was, uh, Blues Shouter, who, uh, this giant, uh, giant pompadour, like a big, you know, he was, he was Af- African American man with a giant greasy pompadour. And I actually had a bit of a pomp, pomp at the time. And, um, <laughs> I, I was a little rockabilly influence, uh, yeah. going on, a greasy haired. And, and he said, like, oh, you should be like kid something, kid something, kid something. You should be like this. Uh, and then we were trying to think of all these things. And then, then he looked down and there was this um, voodoo candle, a Santeria candle, actually. You know, of course, this just sitting around their house. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it said on it, uh, it was called the Congo candle. And, you know, and then it tells you what happens when you light the candle. And it said, when you light this candle, Congo powers will be revealed to you. <laughs> and uh, and he said, "There's your name right there, Kid Congo Powers." Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> you know, it's great. And, and here I am. <laughs> All these years later, yeah, that's here you are, revealed to us. Yes, yes. Right, right. <laughs> still answer, still answering to the name as well. Yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, I mean, as a as a as a gay Mexican American, did you? I mean. Everyone was like a misfit on all these scenes, but you talk, mm-hmm. you use that word misfit. I mean, do you think you felt any more of a misfit than anybody else because of your background and ethnicity? Well, definitely so. You know, I I, I, I was uh, gay, Chicano, self-taught. You know, I was just all all these. You know, if we want to get on the psychiatrist couch right now, <laughs> <laughs> how did you guess? Yes, <laughs> but you know, I, you know, that was always a source of those sexuality and ethnic and, and being Chicano. It was always a source of otherness for me because mm-hmm. I always felt okay. I'm not part of the white American mainstream. I never will be. I am a second class citizen. I am looked down upon, you know, all of these, uh, even as incredibly assimilated, you know, and my parents were born in America. So um, I wasn't, you know, first generation, but these still, this still plays into your uh, world and psyche, you know, that, that America is, uh, is, you know, white, you know, white middle-class, you know, male dominated heterosexual world mm-hmm. you know and that was also you know in in rock music you know too you know we had our our mexican heroes you know um and, and we had people like frank zappa paying homage to this but that outsiderness yeah and misfit because not only that, I was an, an artist, you know, and, and liked all these things that were not of mainstream culture. And whereas that was a, a liberation and exciting and a, and a ticket into an absolute other world, it was also a, a way that I could feel like, you know, there was always a wanting to feel fully accepted which always, uh, you know, kind of plagued me, you know, and that would be with my peers and adults. And, uh, you know, even though I was a very anti-authority figure uh, kid, um, you know, there, there still, there still is a, a something that you really want to belong to the whole world, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, at that time, all of those things seemed like strikes against me, but then in punk rock in Los Angeles, there was such a huge Chicano uh, population that it was, you know, undeniably okay. And, you know, I was lucky to fall in with uh, people like uh, bands like the Screamers and, and uh, whose leading people were, you know, came from the drag scene in New York city and theater of the absurd and and things like that, you know? So that was, uh, you know, that, that I felt like, Oh, I found, I'm, you know, we're always trying, looking for the tribe, you know, and I thought this is, these people are my tribe. And so my earliest exposure to uh, 
rock, punk rock. Uh, yeah, so it was it was kind of good for me because glam rock had, you know, if nothing else, bisexual uh, facade, you know, enough to, to, to you know, I was, I'll go into that fantasy, sure. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to serve me. Yes. And punk, yeah, it was anything goes, you know, when punk started. And, you know, and I, you know, had read about even British punk, you know, that Bromley contingent and Susie and all these people, you know. Um, There's a great story about going to Disneyland with Susie. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really one of the best stories in the book. And you just can see it. And, yes. Uh, and they're, they're just the Disney cops, as you call them, are just horrified. Yes. You're a, it's a sweltering hot day, all dressed in black and all very gothic. <laughs> and, and right, taking the rides. I just, I'd never heard that story before. So. Yeah. That was a joy. I was yes. I was talking of sort of you know gothic sort of gothically for a second. I was curious on the back of what you've just been talking about how it felt to be in you know Nick Cave and the and the Bad Seeds. I mean, you write rather brilliantly that Nick. You say Nick Cave cast me quote unquote <laughs> in the Bad Seeds as a quote unquote. Killer lesbian Mexican mobster. Uh, I mean, those, those are obviously your words and not Nick's. Uh, yes, but, it, but I mean that's clearly how you saw how he saw you. I mean, so yeah. so tell tell us how it. I was saying that the bad thing was a lot of machismo there. This sort of oh, uh, this sure. macabre Berlin machismo that you yes uh, with with you know a lot of heroin and shit going on. I mean, how did yeah. how did it feel to be in the bad seats? Well, I was on heroin. I didn't feel anything. Um, but so, uh, <laughs> oh, so we can't really talk about that. Yeah. No, that segment before. Before, <laughs> yes. before. Right. let's move on. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. There, there, there were there there were realistic moments uh, in, that, in that episode. Well, it felt um, you know I was a huge fan and admirer of the music, and and, and definitely of the work, you know, that was going on, you know, with Nick, I was dumbfounded that they asked me to play, you know, and it was also that, um, I was just asked to fill in for one tour. So I didn't expect more than a few weeks of shows, you know, to, to be involved. But as it turned out, I ended up, you know, uh, uh, moving to Berlin because I was ready to make a move. And like everything else, I've just staked my claim. I'm like, I'm staying here. <laughs> I'm staying in the bad seats. And uh, so, but, but the feeling like, I, uh, yeah, I felt it was the first time I was in a band where I felt, I felt uh, myself personally out of my depth, you know, and that, and that will take many different back on the psychiatrist couch, many different, uh, 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 forms, you know, uh, sexuality, one of being one of them. I mean, I know that they're very open-minded, liberal people, hedonistic, you know, that, you know, homosexuality is not a big deal. You know, they had gay friends, they had lots of queer friends, you know, it was not, not a, not a big deal, but this is something that their own, where I fit in here, this is where I put the pressure only on, you know, on myself, you know, that I was like, oh, I really don't fit here, you know, uh, with this, and uh, and that started a sort of self uh, suppression and and uh, a self negation, really, of sexuality, which is a strange thing to do in Berlin. But that's far too psychological to, uh, <laughs> to, to go on about here, um, <laughs> and it all ended, so it's fine, and uh, and. Uh, uh, but you know, and musically, it was. Uh, I was like, "Oh yeah, they're playing this blues, you know, uh, influenced music," and it was uh, actually, you know, much more complicated and and or, or nuanced than I had I had played before. I came from twelve bar blues, you know, three you know type yeah. of situation with the Cramps and the Gun Club. You know, it wasn't music that was rewriting the wheel or anything you know it was you know it was an interpretation of, of those that style but the bad seeds had very odd timings uh, a lot of piano led songs that were written on piano uh i had already known about singer but sometimes the music just had to follow what the singer was yeah what nick was doing you know and um and it took many different forms who's that young doll 
the devil and he staked his claim on me. At the very end of your book, kid, you talk about this dream you have of the late Jeffrey Lee Pierce coming back to your old kitchen, your your family home in La Puente, and in tow is none other than Brian Eno, um, and it's a very it's a very poignant dream, actually, in a very poignant mm-hmm. way of ending the book, particularly as you've just said that you know you you're coming up for like 25 years clean now so mm-hmm. this this you know you're a great success story in terms of, of recovery which is which is really nice and so congrats on that as it happens we decided to make the, the week's new audio interview a 1992 conversation with brian eno mm-hmm. none other than because he has a new album out so mark is going to tell us just a bit about this audio yeah it's uh, mark sinker undertook it for The Wire. Now, because it's for The Wire, you've got to understand this is fairly highfalutin stuff. You have the resident sort of self-appointed intellectual of British rock and roll being interviewed by Mark Sinker. This is heavy going, but it's actually really good. He starts off talking about youth and cultural identity and the value of pretense and how he likes the fact that, well, he hated the way that the British rock press would mock people who they thought were posing and they had this kind of entirely bogus notion of authenticity, which involved leather jackets and so on and so forth. Let's have a listen to this first clip, Jasper. This is so central to British rock criticism. You know, the, the especially the, not I think it's less so now, but certainly the late 70s, early 80s critics were convinced that there were arty pansies like me, and on the other hand, these real committed, live-the-life rock and rollers like Keith Richards and Jim Morrison and people like that, the guys who would die for it, and those were the, those were the real ones, you know. And that really pissed me off. I just thought, what a stupid idea. And, and what, how much of a reflection of their own um, lack of faith in their, their own lives that reflected, I thought, you know. So all the people who were writing like that all sort of looked so dangerous. They were black leather jackets with big studs and you know, always hanging around as if they were about to do something really much more dangerous than call me pretentious, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, so this, that's, that's very early in the interview. It's, it's, it's a really good start, I think. He talks about, I mean, lots of sort of typical kind of you know, notions like the use of irony and so on and so forth. That's great. I mean, he, he quotes from Richard Rorty's Contingency Irony and Solidarity. Yes. It was, uh, it was uh, a <laughs> super thing to listen to from a philosophical perspective, hearing Brian Eno getting yes, deep into that. I must point out that, that at this point that Jasper is a fully qualified philosopher. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's, re- he's read this shit. We'll play another clip now, which is, is marvellous. It's, it's all about accidents and contingency and so on and so forth and about how joining Roxy Music, if he had got into a different carriage and a train, would never have happened. So let's have a listen to this. This is great. Late 1971, I went down to a tube station, just happened to get on the train in a particular carriage, and there was Andy Mackay, who I'd met three or four years previously um, at Reading University. And uh, I, I didn't know him well, really. and he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just around with tape recorders and so on. He said, oh, well, we've got a little band and we actually want to make some proper demos. So I turned up and that was, that was what became Roxy Music. You see. Now, I often think it would have been so easy to have got on the next carriage and I would have, honestly, I would have had a completely different life. Really, not a little different. I don't think I would have been involved in music, for example. There was no compelling reason for me to stay involved in music, and what I was doing at the time was so um, 
unlikely to ever have any success in the marketplace, that I would have become an art teacher or something. Actually, as it happened, Andy Mackay taught woodwinds at my school, and I actually had an oboe lesson from him. Eno came in to demonstrate the VCS3 synthesizer and was chased out by skinheads shouting, poof, at him. Uh, (laughs) And my art teacher was their roadie, John Ragg, and took me roading for them back in the very, very early days. So they were kind of like... I felt like some of the, I sort of owned Roxy Music in some sort of weird sort of way. Anyway, he <laughs> um, uh, goes on about kind of continuing to make music, the problems of language, minimalism, and the value of the recording studio, what culture does, his how he likes me- creating deadlines for himself, being a contributor to the cultural conversation, the importance of topicality. You can feel I'm running out of breath here. False <laughs> impositions of cultural values, reading and hearing criticism, and so on and so forth. It's it's an hour and a half of pretty heavyweight stuff, but he's he's very he's he's always interesting to listen to. So it's it's good stuff. Good stuff. Kid, you talk in the book about going to see Roxy Music, mm-hmm. I think at the Santa Monica Civic in like March 75. Obviously, Eno was not in Roxy Music anymore at that point. But was I'm intrigued to know whether you sort of responded to Eno particularly in, you know, in, in the first iterations of, of Roxy, the first two albums, whether you were aware of him and how kind of outrageous he was. I was completely aware yeah. of, of Roxy Music and Brian yeah. Eno, and he was, quite frankly, the star of the band. Yeah, you know, he was. Over, yeah, he was. Over, <laughs> over in America, you know, he was the most flamboyant, and he was the most making the most original sound. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, it will later be very much a kind of thing I look to when I'm playing guitar. Sure. You know, his, I mean, his playing, that you know, chaotic... Brian uh, Ferry resented exactly that, what you said about him being perceived as the star of the band was very much the reason why that relationship dried up. <laughs> oh, uh, he nipped that in the bud. <laughs> <laughs> In the context of Brian Eno and, and his new album, wanted to just touch briefly on you know his his relationship, his creative relationship with Robert Fripp of King Crimson. Yeah, not least because Mark and I went to see this new documentary about Crimson last night, and it, and found it to be absolutely riveting and and really quite brilliant, didn't yes. we? I mean, it was it was remarkable. To give it its full name, it's uh, in the court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at fifty. Is that yeah. correct? As yeah. subtitle. And it was, I, it was, I've never seen a music documentary quite like it before, and it was absolutely fabulous. And this is a band I don't, can't say I love, but it, it's, it's, it sucked me in. So for, for this reason, we've made the long read this week, a 1973 NME interview with Fripp. It's hysterical. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean the, the, the documentary was so funny. I wasn't expecting to laugh so much. But you and me and Martin were just laughing out loud for probably yeah, yeah. about the first 45 minutes, weren't yes. we? It was, he's so extraordinary, Fripp. Anyway, so Ian McDonald goes to interview Fripp. The piece is called The Sexual Athlete. 1st September 1973, and there's just some priceless Fripp quotes in it and he talks about Eno because they've just finished doing the no pussyfooting album right and so it's sort of on, on apropos of that and he's Fripp says we're both incorrigible womanizers both wonderful examples of young Torian virility <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and McDonald says, are you going to do any live appearances? And Fripp says, well, I've pleaded to be allowed by the good Captain Eno to join Luana and the Lizard Ladies. I don't know if that's... <laughs> is that something from Here Come the Warm Jets, Luana? I'm not sure. I have anyway, no idea. It's just hysterical here. I mean, this what I'm going to read next is so outrageous. Ian says... What sort of can you give me some sort of guide as to form this enterprise, the Fripp Eno Transcendental Music Corporation? Can you give me some idea what what form that might take? And Fripp says yes, bends over, pulls down his trunks, and presents him with quote unquote a cinerama view of his well scrubbed posterior and environs. 
I mean, it, it just rock stars just don't behave like this anymore, do they? <laughs> anyway, it, and then finally he says, one should see in the alchemical, this is delivered, really, I should read this in a West Country accent, should I not? One should see in the alchemical Eno, replied Fripp, a knowledge of cosmic events and his seeming preoccupation with bondage to be no more nor less than a mystical concern with the limitation of the spirit upon its descent into human form. I mean, let me let's just agree that like Uriah Heap didn't give interviews. <laughs> um, anyway, it was just yeah. ex- extraordinary to revisit that. So Eno's back. This amazing King Crimson film. Anything else to say on that front, Mark? No, I mean just the, the, the movie is going to be shown in certain cinemas. I think yes. the Everyman chain is showing it in a couple of weeks' time or something. Go and see it next week, it. I believe. Next week, yeah. uh, go, or this go, week by the time this comes out. Go and see it. They haven't yet sold it to a streaming service. Is anyone out there listening from Netflix or whoever, Amazon Prime, pick yeah, this kid, thing up. Kid, all your contacts, please. Yes. I'm, pick- I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, pick this thing up and, and show it. It, 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 <laughs> yes. it, is, it is fantastic. I would really say it's fantastic. one of the greatest music documentaries I have ever oh, seen. Wow. I'll, yeah. I'll stick my neck out that far. I yeah. thought it was remarkable. Any yeah. highlights? Um, yeah, kid, if, if you hear anything that prompts uh, an opinion or a memory, just, just jump in, wave your hand and regale us with your views. But Mark, tell us about some of the pieces you've added. Last week, Dawn James and Mike Grant, who is, is actually Keith Altham under another guise, do one of those things where they talk to the Stones and put all this stuff together as a sort of patchwork article. They say, Brian says he's not getting married to German model Anita Pallenberg and never intended doing so. Does he believe in marriage? Does anyone really believe in it to inquire by way of an answer? Would he say that he's going steady with his German girlfriend? Yes, he admitted. This is from 1966 Rave. Leaping forward to 1996, Chris Needs interviews Arthur Baker. And Arthur Baker says, One day, Joe Batan said to me, You've got to come to the Bronx and see this. These guys are talking over records. I'll never forget his words. He said, someone's going to make a million dollars out of this. And he wanted to get a rap on the record they were making at the time. I just love that. That's, that's, that's yeah. just great. This week, Disc of Music Echo, 25th of May, 1968. Penny Valentine's review of the Stone single, Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah. And he says, yes, yes, oh, yes. Raise your hands, children. Stamp your feet and get moving. Because the real, live, not-to-be-fooled-by-imitations Rolling Stones are back with us. A fantastic record right back in the, the satisfaction stakes with a solid raving thought behind it. Mr. Jimmy Miller produced it with deliberate heavy maracas and guitar and a feeling that all will be well with the Stones, and it is. Buy it, borrow it, beg it, steal it, anything. Just get hold of the copy and play it loudly enough to disturb the minds of those around you. You will. A number one or something's very rotten in the state. Well, dear old Penny Valentine, she got it. I, I you know, vivid <laughs> memory of watching Top of the Pops, and they put on that promo video, them with their painted faces and all that. And I'm 12, and just the hair stood up. And suddenly the Stones were my band at that point. It's sort of the birth of the Stones' satanic majesty, isn't it? Oh, really? I know the previous yeah. album was called Satanic Majesties, but actually there's nothing satanic about absolutely, that at all. No, and this, and this one song. Yeah, and that video—it's like, oh my God, the the devil has has arrived in Stonesland. My sister was a <laughs> fan of the Stones. She had, we had aftermath and all. I like bits of her. I like some of the singles and so on and so forth. It was that record which turned me into a Stones fan. Absolutely, just out of that. Moving on, uh, Victoria Spivey, interviewed by Richard, the new writer on our books, Richard Harrington for the Unicorn Times. He, Richard went on to write for the Washington Post. From 1975, Victoria Spivey isn't someone who's you'll find a lot in the rock press. And she's great. She says, I'm a one-style person, and if you pick up on it right now, there's nobody around that has the same idea that I have. 
they they all have changed and the rest of them are dead. Basically talking about being one of the last of the classic blues singers. Lastly, the police's Stuart Copeland to Sylvie Simmons sounds 1979. And he says, you've never seen anyone wearing one of those stupid disco sucks badges in England because they've heard disco. The only people who wear those badges are people who haven't heard it and don't know what they're talking about. Which I, I completely approve of. It's a statement. I so, do too. Do you remember the disco sucks thing at that oh, time, uh, kid? And the I, burning I, of I, the burning of the twelve inches in Chicago. Yeah, do you, yeah, yeah. What what could make you want to listen to disco more? More. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you weren't interested yeah. up to that point. And, so. and besides the point that it was obviously also a disco sucks on a mainstream America thing was an anti-gay uh, you yeah. know, sentiment. Yeah. Overtly yeah. homophobic yeah. and racist, yeah, basically. Yeah. Was. Yes. And racist as well. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's my lot. Over to you guys. Well, well how wonderful. Yes, so I'm just going to mention a couple of these. I'm not going to quote from them, but in the context of the episode, there's a review of a band called The Cramps at the Ritz in New York from 1986. <laughs> How about that? I know. What so a coincidence. Just mention that. Also, in the context of this episode, we didn't mention this and the fact that you, kid, were the president, or at least the president of the LA branch of the Ramones fan club, which I love. I love the fact Very that Jeffrey, yes, <laughs> Jeffrey, Jeffrey was the president of the Blondie fan club, and you were the president yes. of the Ramones fan club which yes. is something absolutely wonderful about that so from 2001 we are running sort of an obituary piece by in fact also the aforementioned david dalton for gadfly which is really just a lovely piece about a lovely guy the great joey ramone who you knew very well mm-hmm. i interviewed a couple of times and I just what a he was sort of one one of sort of God's innocence in a way. Wasn't he really he? is, huh? You know, I mean, no, it, it, no, there was no like affectation there. He, he was just he was just sort of genuine dude, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I want to say goofy, but it wasn't really goofy. It was yeah, so it like, was there was like some a child there. Yes. Well, I always wish I'd, I would always love to have seen a picture of Joey Ramone pre Ramones when he was in. Uh, his glam band oh, called yeah, Striper or something. And yeah. he would totter along Queens Boulevard. I mean, he's already about six foot seven, yeah. but he would wear platform boots that added about another nine inches to his <laughs> frame. But I don't know if there are any pictures of that. No, yeah, um, Could yeah. you do talk about him falling into the, losing his balance and falling into the drum kit? Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> In, yeah. in Converse sneakers, yeah. um, much less heels. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when I first saw the Ramones, you know, they were came on stage and were, you know, letting us have it. And then at one point, he just was teeter, started teetering, and it was like, like in complete slow motion, like backwards <laughs> and like forward and backwards again. And you're like, Whoa, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? There was a, yeah, and then one leg goes off. We're like, uh oh, here he goes, here he goes. And then he just smashed into the bat, into the drums, sending them all flying. <laughs> then Johnny, Johnny starts screaming at him. <laughs> what are you doing, you idiot? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it was That's so great. great. And I was like, that was my first Ruon show. And I was like, wow. This wow, is yeah. the most amazing rock and roll. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. Jasper, what have you got for us this week? Speaking of high heels, <laughs> I actually have Kiss and Share, The Minder Reveals All. It's an interview Mick Brown did in the Daily Telegraph on the 3rd of September 2003 with the former bodyguard of and sort of like fixer for Kiss and Cher and like Bon Jovi and all these other people. His name is Michael, Michael Francis. Francis. Michael yeah. Francis, who wrote a book about the whole thing. And there's this great bit. He's on tour with Kiss. He's got to get them to the stage, but it requires an elevator ride from their basement dressing rooms. Everything's smaller in Japan, he says, including the lifts. Having loaded the four members of the group dressed in their 12-inch heels, spandex trousers, fright wigs and makeup, Francis was unable to squeeze himself in. I told them, press six. A few minutes later, on cue in front of 68,000 screaming fans, the fireworks and explosions that heralded the group's entrance went off to reveal an empty stage. Francis eventually found the four bemused musicians wandering around an upper floor of the auditorium completely lost. They'd pressed 12. To their credit, they could see the funny side of it. They said, (laughs) it's just like Spinal Tap. 
I said, no, it's Final Tap. I can't do this anymore. Final Tap! <laughs> that was the last straw in him quitting, him quitting that job. But it's just very funny stories that he tells um, about that whole, you know, backstage environment. And then Edward Helmore in The Observer, From Spreading Happiness to Saving the Planet, The Rise and Rise of Pharrell, which is a kind of interesting comment on the one and only Pharrell Williams, in, featuring the quote, Pharrell appears to be settling into his role as a multimedia prophet. He has given himself over to invocations of pseudo-mysticism, recently explaining, It's all math. You have a certain number of bones in your body. You have seven holes in your face. There are nine planets, a sun, trillions and trillions of galaxies. Everything quantifies to numbers. It's just bizarre, but quite funny. (laughs) And David Sigerson gets a mention in that piece as well, as he often does when it comes to Pharrell. And then lastly, I wanted to mention John, a review of John Hopkins' album Singularity. And John Hopkins is a, is a producer of some... Actually, I really like a lot of what he does. Interesting kind of long-form electronic dance mixture of electronica and dance music. And Stephen Dalton reviews it for Uncut. And he writes of Everything Connected, a 10-minute epic that starts with a leet-footed bounce of a classic Ibiza trance anthem, then mutates and corrodes into a stew of circuit-bending, pitch-tweaking, acid-glitch sizzle. Hopkins calls this marathon track a massive techno bastard, not inaccurately. (laughs) So, yeah, on a massive techno bastard, that's where I want to conclude. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jasper. That's great. Well, look, it remains for us to thank you so much for joining us today, kids. Thank you for having me. If you're listening, buy kids, tremendous memoir, some new kind of kick, published next week on this side of the pond by Omnibus. Also, do visit Rock's Back Pages, where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and hear over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP, and if not, maybe ask them to take a trial. Anyway, thanks again, kid. It's great to Thank see you. you. Good luck with the Thank book. Thank you so much. Great, it's great to talk to all of you. <laughs> <They're> wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with Billy James. Guesting Billy is the guy who did the very first interview ever with Bob Dylan when he was the head of press at Columbia Records in New York. So he's going to be talking about Bob Dylan and Laurel Canyon and Jackson Brown, all kinds of other things. He's a tremendous character. So we're looking forward to that. Fantastic. But for now, it's goodbye from him. Uh, as one of the two Ronnies used to say, <laughs> goodbye from him. <laughs> yeah, it's goodbye from all of us. Bye. That concludes episode 138 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Kid Congo Powers. Some new kind of kick is available this week in all good bookshops. For more Kid, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Kid Congo Powers. The host of Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. I'm